Welcome to another installment of the Movie Geeks United Art of the Score series. From his first major effort in William Lustig's 1980 horror masterpiece Maniac, all through the remainder of that decade, with iconic work and audience favorites like Missing in Action, Silver Bullet, and Invasion USA, to his years of prolific work in the Star Trek television series The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, film composer Jay Chataway has defined the musical voice of genre entertainment. In this lengthy conversation, we discuss the highlights of that career, his collaborations with figures like Lustig, The Cannon Group, and Dino De Laurentiis, and how his work on the Star Trek franchise has redefined his fan base. Well, I attended a concert um, with the Pittsburgh Symphony when Henry Mancini was the guest conductor. Um, I was a college student at the time, and my teacher took me to the concert, and uh, there was Henry Mancini conducting the orchestra and playing his piccolo and piano, and a little light bulb went off in my head and said, gee, I really want to do that. And, uh, and I sort of patterned my career to try to follow that path, and I guess I succeeded. Yeah, you sure did. And did you come <laughs> from uh, Did you come from a jazz background? I mean, yeah, what were your I, I did. I mean, I was a jazz guy before I was a film composer. And um, although I studied composition in college, um, my real love was doing jazz, and I had a, a jazz background. I produced lots and lots of jazz albums. I was a staff producer at um, Columbia Records. Um, produced Maynard Ferguson the theme from Rocky. Um, and I guess when I really got close to it, <clears throat> I was working with Gato Barbieri, who uh, wrote the um, music for Last Tango in Paris. And uh, Gato approached me um, and said, Jay, uh, I, I, well, I did about three albums for him as arranger and producer. And he said, I've, I've been asked to write this score for a, a film. And uh, I've never really scored a film when he did Bertolucci's last tango um he just wrote thematic music and Bertolucci cut the, the film to his music and um so when Gatto was asked to do this film he said he accepted the job but realized it wasn't exactly what he had in mind and so he asked me and of course I had never done it either but I said well, yeah I can do that and um next thing you know I'm I'm scoring using Gatto's themes I'm scoring a a Sophia Loren movie for Michael Winner and recording in London with the London Philharmonic and with Gato <laughs> playing the saxophone. <laughs> so wow. that was sort of my my big uh, opening day. You know that the, we recorded at Wembley Studios in London and uh, this, the big screen opens and there's Sophia Loren on the screen and there's the London Philharmonic and I'm conducting the music that I. I was given credit as orchestrator, but I basically wrote a lot of it and got those themes, of course. But it was it was a thrill, and it took me quite a while to get an orchestra that size to do a film score again. But I I got the fever really bad, so um, it, yeah. it was very contagious. Well, in that film, if memory serves, that film was '79, around there in that area. So your your first kind of breakout in film scoring happened not too long after that with Maniac. Correct. Um, I had actually talked to the Maniac guys. I was still a, <clears throat> a staff producer at Columbia Records, and um, 
uh, Andy Garoni, who was the producer, one of the producers of Maniac, came came to me and wanted to know if there were any um, any of my artists that might be interested in scoring their film. And I said, well, I might be interested in it. And um, so I met, uh, he took me to meet Bill. And <clears throat> these guys were so young and enthusiastic. And um, it was really, it was really incredible, the energy that they were uh, showing. And so when I saw their film, I had never really, I was not into horror uh, films at all. It was like, well, that's pretty graphic. I don't know if I could do that, but but their energy was so was so crazy, and they said, and they said, yeah, sure, I'll, I I think I can do this, and so that was a real part of my education because Bill was a complete fan of Ennio Morricone, and um, so I would go to Bill's apartment, and we'd spend hours and hours watching a lot of the uh, uh, these uh, spaghetti westerns and 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 movies that Marconi scored that were very sparse, but extremely effective. And Bill said, well, see how this music works. And this is what, this is what I want to have in my movie. And of course they could never afford like what Marconi was doing then, but um, they had a limited budget and, and he said, just go write this music. And, and uh, so I did. And, and, and Maniac became this sort of cult favorite that I think now there are like seven or eight, different reissues of the score. And um, I mean, it, it was kind of crazy. The The movie re- was very widely panned and widely accepted at the same time. But the music yeah. was not necessarily amazingly violent. I mean, I sort of took attack that, hey, here's this guy who's, you know, been locked in a closet and had cigarettes put out on his body. And so sort of took a pathos type, you know, emotional sort of straight to the music and uh and it really worked and and of course we had the typical violent you know scare throw the popcorn in the air music but it was the emotional music which caught people's ear and uh it was quite effective bill liked it a lot and we went on to do a lot of movies together afterwards about doing a, a, a graphic horror film or your your lack of you, you weren't an aficionado of the genre necessarily I think that helped that score in a way because it feels like such an outside of the box approach to scoring right. a movie like that and and yeah. this is another thing that uh, you know you are a mu- you are a musician you come from a deep musical background but film composition calls upon something unique with musicians I think in that you are an assistant storyteller uh, alongside mm-hmm. the director. So your job right. is to interpret character and, and themes of a film and that sort of thing. Did did you automatically kind of have a feel for that when you got started on this, or was it a process for you? Well, I sort of had this knack, and I don't know where it came from um, to understand it, but when I, 
when I see a rough cut of a film or a TV show that I'm working on, I sort of hear the music and um, in its entirety, which which is good and bad at the same time because it, it's good in that it gives you some idea of what to do musically, but it's bad in that if you hear it all at once, how do you write it down and, and remember it all? So um, it was in that case, this is way before we had like even videotapes. So the only way for me to watch this film was to go to the editing room and watch it like on a, a upright movieola with all the clickety clack going on. And, um, and then I would go home and I would just take notes and, and just write to the notes. I didn't have a visual image other than what I saw and then what I could sort of imagine in my mind as to how it would all work together. So in a way, it was actually better than later on when you actually have a, a video and you can hunt and pack and play different things against the picture and all that. There was none of that. It was like, okay, here's here's the timings. Go home and write the music and then come back, you know, three days later. They might have, have a little bit more edited and have more timings and then work on that, et cetera. But the beautiful thing about working with a lot of the directors I've worked with, they were totally, totally hands off on the music. They didn't do stuff like tracking the movie or, or playing music. They wanted it to sound like, I said, no, just write the music. <laughs> and so, so I did. And um, I think Bill came to one recording session when we mixed the music and, and that was about it. And and all the movies I've done with him, he was the same trusting soul. He said, you know, you, you know, music, we've already talked about what I want the music to do. And um, I'm not telling him how to shoot his movie. And he feels he shouldn't be telling me how to write the music. So it was a beautiful yeah. relationship. Have you, I mean, yeah, that freedom is essential, I think. But have you been in a situation where it's, there have been too many fingers in the pie. There's been like a filmmaking by committee almost, and everybody has a say in. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it sort of progressed to that point where I think once film music became more, um, uh, well, more self-produced, more non-orchestral, the directors and producers would actually want to move in. They say, "I'm going to move into your studio and 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 help," you know, which is like that sort of like makes the process go a lot longer and uh, a lot less productive because then every minutia of the composition is sort of controlled by people discussing, well, what do you you think? Should that be a French horn or whatever? You know, it was just very, very weird. Yeah. And on that same track, I mean, I've heard, I've heard some pop pop hit makers say that if a, if a song comes to them, just kind of in a fl- in a flash, they know mm-hmm. that that's a hit. They know that it's right. But if they have to really labor over it, it, it right. usually doesn't turn out as good as they wanted it to. Do, do you find the same with the composition? Pretty much exactly like that. Um, uh, some films I've had, I've felt like I've had to labor more on than than others, and they weren't. They didn't turn out as as good. I mean, it's just one of those things, especially later on when I was doing uh, like Star Trek, for example, when you have to write so much music in such a short time, it becomes very much like a process and you just can't look back. You just have to keep writing music um, about 18 to 20 hours a day for weeks at a time. And it becomes sort of a chore after a while. And But the moments that really shine are the ones – 
which came instantly. Um, like the, I don't know, I, you probably want to go chronologically, but when I wrote the, the inner light from Star Trek, for example, that melody came in like 30 seconds. It was there. And, uh, and it was the, the right, the right music. And, um, some other times it didn't happen that way. So it, I think there's something in the ozone that controls how all this works. I, I don't think anybody's really figured it out yet. Yeah, and you kind of don't want to don't want to examine it too closely. You don't want to define it because you you want it to keep coming to you, you know. But that the exactly. inner light is the inner light is probably the most popular piece you've ever written. I think, isn't it? I guess it, I guess it is. It's probably the most performed. Um, we just a year ago we we did the um it was called Star Trek the Ultimate Voyage and it was just a tribute to Star Trek music, uh not so much the films but about the music from all the Star Trek movies and all of the t- Star Trek series and it was all done to projection and they had cut um um vignettes of various pieces of Star Trek lore and, and uh, film filmmaking and so my inner light piece was highly featured well as well as about eight of my other pieces in that show and uh, I actually got to conduct the premiere in London again with the London Philharmonic at Royal Albert Hall and uh, it was just so cool to go back and actually some of the same people were in the orchestra when I first when I did my very first film there and uh, it it has you know it's been used for a lot of different things um Weddings, funerals, graduations—you uh, name it—it it sort of fits the bill in a lot of places. But it was a very poignant piece, and very remarkably different uh, use of music in in Star Trek. So um, I, I think that attributed a lot to its popularity. Is the is the instrument? Is that a penny whistle? It is. It's a relatively inexpensive um, Clark penny whistle. That you can buy for about four dollars, and uh, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a penny whistle. <laughs> yeah, speaking of Morricone, I mean, he incorporated the penny whistle in some of his great pieces. Yeah, well. and, and he did. And and what's really interesting is that <clears throat> I look back at um, a lot of stuff that I've done, and for some reason, that instrument or an instrument very much like that. If you recall, in in Maniac, the principal melodic instrument was a, a wooden recorder, um, a flute-like instrument that played the theme for the maniac uh, walking around, looking in the windows and, and stuff like that. And uh, another film that I did much later than that, um, Stephen King's Silver Bullet, I also used um, a recorder for the principal melody so there's something innocent and childlike about that instrument that that is uh it just recalls um kind of youthfulness and innocence and that's I guess why I chose it. Um in Star Trek it wasn't chosen exactly by me. Um we brought in a whole different bunch of instruments for the director to look at and um we actually chose the penny whistle for more visual reasons than the sound of it. Because you think about if, if if Patrick Stewart were playing a flute, he'd have to hold the flute across his face, and you wouldn't see as much of his face. And um, a penny whistle you hold vertically, so you can the camera can come in on your eyes and your face, and 
it's unobstructed by a musical instrument. And of course, the sound was, uh, he came from a planet that was mostly metal workers, so it had some relevance to uh, the genesis of, of where he was living at the time in that episode.
you have to fight against type typecasting, I mean, much like an actor would when they've proven they're so good at one particular style? Well, I guess. Um, I mean, I was offered a lot more uh, genre horror-type films. Um, and, you know, they started getting a little bit better in terms of budgets and, and quality of – I shouldn't say quality of filmmaking, but but more expensive films. Um, but once I did Missing in Action, then it was like, okay, now you're an action guy. You've, I mean, nobody even talked about doing – horror films anymore they wanted action music from me so yeah i probably did eight or nine action f- films and um and it was sort of uh well how many times can you do a chase with soldiers and tanks and trucks and airplanes and boats blowing up uh it sort of got to be uh, repetitive i guess you would say but if you want to reference something interesting in, in missing in action the um, initial part of that, where that score was derived from, I was sitting at, in the actually Canon Films editing room while the sound editors were um, working on sound effects. And so they were cutting machine guns and mortars and bazookas and helicopters and all that stuff. And so my uh, inspiration sort of came from the sound 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 effects next door. So I was I actually utilized um, the sound of machine guns and uh, and bombs and stuff in the music. So it was, so I'll get back at those sound effects guys. I'll I'll write the I'll write music using what they're playing with, and uh, and they loved it. So it was it was kind of a cool approach to solving a problem and and sort of having a tongue in cheek, you know, reference back to the sound effects people. I don't know if any of uh, any of these films that we're talking about if they were ever test screened it might it might predate the constant practice of test screening but it has have you been on a project where actually a, like a test screening has determined no that doesn't quite work there the audience didn't react the way they should have have you ever calibrated your score around that well usually the scores that i did in those earlier years <clears throat> there just wasn't time for a test screening in fact when i was starting to score missing in action the trailers were already in the theaters and the ads were already on television for the movie so not only was there not time to do a test screening um there wasn't time to see the first and last uh reel of the movie because it wasn't finished yet so the <laughs> the first and last reel was all action and and Josino said well it's just you know it's just 10 minutes of action so just write some music that that you could you know, maybe we could manipulate to fit the scene and uh, it'll, I'm sure it'll work. So we devised a quite a unique way of, um, and this was before digital sampling um, technology and, and pro tools and stuff. So I recorded the genesis of the orchestra, the rhythmic parts playing this sort of a Montuno repetitive rhythm in sort of a five, eight or seven, eight meter that, could sound syncopated enough that you could put anything over it and it wouldn't sound wrong. And then we recorded separately a bunch of uh, like bravado type heroic music and then some very demonic uh, bad guy music, if you want to call it. And then we took all the pieces separately to back to California where they were cutting the film. And my music editor would string all the, these we call them stings on separate pieces of tape. And then 
when we saw actually the film, what the film looked like, we would say, wait, that looks like a good moment, so let's stick the good guy music here. Oh, there's a bad guy, so let's put some bad guy music, play over this big, long 10-minute loop of uh, orchestral uh, Montuno, and it came out being the most disjunct piece of music, but yet it still sounded pretty fresh and innovative, and so they loved it. So it was, it was a very successful approach to scoring something we never saw. The, I guess the most, it wasn't really a test screening. It was more of an industry screening. Um, when I did Silver Bullet for Dino De Laurentiis, I had never met uh, Dino um, until the screening. And so he asked me to sit next to him as though we were spotting the movie for the first time to, to figure out where the music's going to go. But this, by this time, the music is fin- finished. The picture is mixed. And we're sitting there, and Dino's giving me his critiques as, as the film is playing. Um, most importantly, I use this sort of a bell theme, sort of a haunted bell effect. And Dino says in his sort of Italian-esque voice, he says, Jay, the bells, the bells are, for, are, are, are not, not for this. The bells are for weddings. So this is about death and, and destruction. You can't have these bells. So I had to go back into the score and take out all the bells. And uh, so I guess that was sort of a test screening moment. But the um, <laughs> interesting enough in that film, in addition to being in industry screening, this was done for Paramount, which had just had a big, a big run with uh, from very scary, gory movies. And and Silver Bullet wasn't intended to be. Uh, it would be the equivalent of like a PG-13, but they really wanted to get an R rating, thinking that was going to get, you know, more gory uh, people to come to the film. And so they went in and shot a bunch of uh, pickup shots where they would show a werewolf clawing somebody's face. And, and so they cut all that into the film as well. So a lot of it, it wasn't totally rescored, but a lot of the action things had to be reconfigured and some limited rescoring basically uh uh, on the merits of a, uh, I guess you could call it a test, a test screening. Uh, Joe Zito was probably the most prolific music spotter, I guess you could call it, and he would, he would speak in tomes about. Well, you see this scene. Well, I failed in in getting the emotion in this scene, so you have to put more emotion in here. And and this character doesn't relate to this one, so you can do that with the music and so many things they re- request the music to do which was basically impossible to do everything. But his, his instructions were so um, uh, complicated that, and, and so also complicated, but also very to the point where he'd say, well, he admit his own failures in the film and said, relied on the music to fix it. So the, um, the music was done independent of him coming and listening. But once we got into the editing room, he loved to move things around a lot. So what you would see normally scored for a, a title sequence, he would say, let's, let's move that a little bit and see what you think. And he, he loved to manipulate music after it was, after it was finished. So his way of, um, of spotting the film was to sort of spot it af- after it was written. It was kind of a unique approach. Is it sometimes challenging to determine – I mean, we've been talking about spotting and where you place music, but where not to have music? Yes, and I think you'll prob- probably find that the, the least 
um, let's see, I can say this correctly, the the least quality of cinematic um, a quality of a film, the more music that's required to be in it. Because I think there's a lot of uh, um, directors and producers who feel like, well, we have to have wall-to-wall music because the film has some shortcomings. So I think the most effective use of music in a film is when it's not in the film. In other words, when there's silence, and then the music makes a, a statement that can that can change an audience opinion or maybe scare somebody or make something very emotional. But when it's when it becomes start to finish, um, there's no respite and there's no breath allowed for uh, one to think about, well, that music was really nice, but why is it still going on? Like, you know, it's like wall to wall. It's just, it just covers up everything. Mm. Well, you, you've had such an extraordinary career that, that it, that it has, it has lasted as long as it has and that you are still uh, as relevant as you were the day you started. And I mean, this latter part of your career, I would imagine Star Trek has a large role in, in, in securing that longevity. Have you noticed kind of a, your fan base uh, change since Star Trek came into your life? Well, of course, because Star Trek um, was already a hit when I got involved with it. And I wasn't really, I didn't really want to be a TV guy. And, and nowadays people can go from genre to genre without, without it mattering. But in early days, you either did film or you did television. So I was working my way up in the film world. And all of a sudden I got this call to do an episode of Star Trek. And I, so I said, well, I'll do one, but that's all I'm really interested in because I didn't even, I didn't watch Star Trek. I wasn't into it, but the beauty of Star Trek was it had a huge orchestra every week. So, and I loved doing orchestral music. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do one. And so I did one and they liked it. And then a little later they came back and asked me well, to be a regular person, or, uh, alternate every other week doing an episode. I said, I, I just don't know if I can do that because I'm doing all these, I'm doing like Maniac Cop, really important movies. And I don't want to do television. It's going to take me away from that. And they said, no, Jay, you don't understand. You have to do this. It's going to be your career. It's your financial future. And, I, I didn't know how these things would work. And so I said, well, okay. So I, I, I signed on for a season and, uh, and it lasted 16 years. So, uh, and they were right. I didn't, what I didn't know is that they had all these sequels coming down the pike. And um, so I did next generation and, and, you know, it was, wasn't bad doing each and uh, every other episode when there's only one show going on, but then two thirds of the way through the run of that, series they introduced the next series of deep space nine and but they didn't add any composers they said okay now you and dennis mccarthy who's my friend and said you guys can do this right we, so we looked at each other and said, well yeah i guess and so now we're writing two episodes you know um back to back and it was very very difficult and they kept doing this they would they bring in a few guest composers now and then but Basically, Dennis and I did the bulk of of all uh, four of the series that we worked on, and uh, so it pays off in the long run. But the, um, the the fan base, you can imagine. I mean, I did my first episode of uh, Next Generation, and then 
instantly you get you get feedback from uh, your fans. I mean, there's message boards and people are are writing in and saying like, um, oh, that score was really unique. Who was that? And blah blah blah. And then every week after that, you could watch as the show is being aired. There's two uh-huh. and a half million people that are writing comments as each queue goes by. I mean, it was it's pretty unbelievable um, about a fan base, and yet there's still the horror people that uh, that still think that that's what I I do, and a lot of it hasn't really crossed over. Um, not too many horror people are necessarily Star Trek people, and and vice versa. And then there's the action people, and they sort of forgot about my <laughs> jazz roots, but. Um, you know that's still back there, and so it's well, interesting. That's, that's, my, that's so awesome that you have all these different niches that you that you fit into. You you know you appeal to the, the masses in so many different ways. Yeah, well, it's interesting. My wife is doing my biography, and so she's she keeps saying, "Did you actually do all of this?" I said, "Yeah, <laughs> I, I did, and I'm I'm still doing it. I'm 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 doing a, sort of back to my jazz roots, and I'm working with this amazing." Uh, Afro-Cuban jazz group from Havana and and symphony orchestra. So um, we're doing a whole album and doing a tour, hopefully uh, both east and west coast here, but we're going to Havana in uh, November with this group and with the orchestra in, in Cuba to work with them. And it's it's fascinating and the music is very cool and um, and they're amazing musicians and it's an orchestra. So when when is that uh, coming about the the album and the tour? Well, it's it's been in progress. We did a couple concerts in L. A. and um, San Diego last uh, last fall, and um, we're trying to put a tour together on the east and west coast for for 2020. So, um, mm. but the cul- culmination will be in Havana this coming November. So um, wow. I still have got to write about four more charts for for them and rehearse with them and. They're very cool musicians, and uh, who knows where it'll go. I mean, it's very unique music, and it's just um, a breath of fresh air compared to what's been happening like jazz-wise. It's definitely not smooth jazz, let's put it that way. Yeah. No, I can't wait to hear that. I, I just <laughs> had uh, I just had three other uh, quick questions for you. Um, okay. You know, a, a few years ago I spoke to Jan Hammer, and, and he was talking about his experiences composing Miami Vice. Which you know, if any show used a lot of music, it's that one. And he said right. that working in working in TV, I mean, the the demand for more music, more music was just constant, and he didn't have a chance to second guess himself uh, in a way while while he assembled that music, and that might have helped create some I- iconic work, uh, like we were talking about before. When when you uh, when it comes to you. Um, right. It tends to be more memorable. But t- tell me about the demands, like the amount of music you're you're asked to do when you work on TV. Well, it's a, it's an amount that doesn't sound like it's all that much to do 20 minutes of music. Um, but we're we're talking 20 minutes of music for orchestra in in a week. Um, that's not like sitting down at a piano keyboard and doing a sketch and handing it off to like three other guys. This is like myself just writing and in those days um writing by hand on paper uh the scores and then um i I literally had to stay up at least all night um one night a week just to get finished so there was no there was no turning back you didn't like 
right page one and then page two and then start thinking, oh, let me go back to page one and see what I did. No, no. You have to keep going left to right. And, and Dennis McCarthy would tell me, he says, just don't look back. He said, just go left to right and get, then you get the next piece out. <laughs> you, start, you go left to right. Um, I had my own little incentive plan and in if you looked at some of my my sketches, I would write on the paper, let's say if it was a, a four-minute piece, I'd say, okay, at 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to start, and by 10 o'clock, I'm going to be here, and by noon, I'm going to be over here, and by 2 o'clock, I'm going to be finished. So yeah, I would award my reward myself if I actually made those deadlines uh, hourly. I'd go out for a walk. That was my big treat. But if I didn't get there, I had to keep working. And the real scary part is if you caught a cold or didn't feel good, the, the, the three or four minutes a day that you have to do, the next day you have to do twice that much or else you just don't not show up yeah. with the music. I mean, uh, it doesn't look good at all. <laughs> you have 50 or 60 musicians and, and nothing for them to play. It's, it's, you don't come back. I mean, that's, that's sort yeah. of how that works. So, uh, um, but it was brutal. You know, it was very, very brutal. Uh, and it took its toll. I mean, I, I, um, uh, it was very hard being with my family. I would always get the score that would record right after Christmas and my kids would be outside my studio wanting, wanting dad to come out and play. And, uh, sorry, I, I got to record like the day after new year's or something and I can't come out and play. And so it was, uh, it was pretty tough and it was tough emotionally and very tough physically too. I mean, it's like very hard. You're just sitting there and, Again, though, the payoff is when you walk into the studio and you've got a whole bunch of musicians and you hear your music that you just wrote, like maybe that day, uh, coming in your face uh, and you're conducting and it's aerobic and it's just, um, it's like a drug. I mean, it's just an amazing feeling, that euphoria that you get from having your own music played right to you. And then having it be on the air and millions of people watch it and then you get paid for it. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. You've, you've composed so many great themes. I mean, like I said, I have so many of your titles in my personal collection and I love the, the thematic elements of the scores that you do. And I've, uh -huh. I've noticed that in the past few years or the past decade or so, film scoring in general has veered away from those themes and it's more kind of an extension of sound effects. It, it almost yeah. sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a good reason for that. And um, if you notice that so many films now, especially bigger films are, uh, they have to be tracked uh, musically before um before they're presented to even the executives from the film company. So film editors and music editors now carry with them an entire uh, library of um, existing film music. And so they, they know that if you put, like if you track a film with Batman themed music, that somebody's going to recognize that, Oh, that's the Batman theme. So, that's no good. But they can sort through a lot of that music and find non-thematic music to track with. And so they do. And then they'll hire a composer and say, okay, the ex executives really like this score. And, and, um, and so can you write something like that? So they do. And it becomes 
well, gee, there's no themes in it, so um, I guess they don't want to hear themes. <laughs> so the music becomes sort of amalgamated or homogenized. So it's sort of a compilation of a bunch of other people's non-thematic film scores, which are getting used to track yet more films. So, um, uh, and I can tell you a short vignette about melodic scores and my very first ever Star Trek score. Um, I was asked just to write my idea of what uh, vastness and space would be like, et cetera. And so um, not giving any other instruction than that. And I was, I am still a huge fan of John Williams who has themes for everything. So, um, so I did a, a score for my first show was called the Tin Man. And I had themes for the Vulcans and themes for the Romulans and themes for the Klingons and everything. So I did this big action piece, six minutes long, and I came into the studio and all the executives were there. And I was expecting bravo and applause. And they're all kind of looking down and maybe they were just testing me. I'm not sure. But they said, okay, that's that's okay, but now go out and do something different. But we don't like all those themes and everything. And I said, well, what do you mean different? Well, you know, it's just, just do something different. So I went out and took all the thematic elements out of my score and um, with the theory being, their theory was that they think that the Star Trek listeners and audience are so wise, they don't want to be told whether a Klingon is a good or evil force or vice versa, that it should be kind of neutral. So the score started to develop into a non-thematic template based on the producers' wishes and what they thought the audience would really like. But once I was then able to do a very thematic score, such as the Inner Light or some of the uh, more thematic ones, the fans really reacted to that. So I'm not really sure if the fans were really driving the bus or whether the producers were just afraid to have music make such a, a bold statement. Yeah, yeah. I heard one. I heard one composer say that it's really. It is kind of like a, a studio decision. Like they don't they don't like to rely on themes anymore because they feel like it's outdated somehow. Well, um, it's outdated, yeah. And it also it gives the composer a shot at sort of maybe changing the the vibe of the film. You know, if it's like maybe they don't want people coming away humming the theme. <laughs> you know, like just do the music and let get don't let it get in the way. And can you imagine somebody <laughs> saying that to Henry Mancini or somebody like? Yeah, don't write anything pretty here, or don't write any yeah. songs. Or, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's unthinkable to me. I guess I'm in a different generation like you. But um, my last question that I always ask uh, our composers that we have on the show, <clears throat> if you were to teach a class on, on film scoring, what are two or three uh, scores just from the history of film scoring that y you would use as an example to teach various lessons? Well, I actually do teach film scoring. Um, I'm what's called the Distinguished Composer in Residence at West Virginia University, and I teach oh, wow. two weeks a year there every year. And I've also been um, artist in residence at Berkeley College in Boston. And uh, and so I do I do have my uh, favorite scores that um, that I will play. And the most favorite of mine is uh, Ennio Morricone. Um, the mission mm. and it, um, I, I, that one in particular because I actually got to work with Morricone at a, a seminar 
where he explained for like three hours the use of the differences in sacred and secular music um, in that score. And, uh, of course, it took almost six hours because he speaks no English and had to be translated. So it was quite <laughs> the experience uh, of working with him. And um, a, a couple other ones that people might not have expected that um, I would choose um, – but I think John Williams' E.T. score was probably would be one of the three that I would use, and I would use Henry Mancini's "Shot in the Dark" uh, mm. score. So I don't know. I hope that answered the question succinctly. Most composers I talk to have have a great difficulty answering that question. <laughs> oh really? Oh well, I guess because I've been teaching it and and showing it, and and with the Morricone thing, I mean that's really how I learned. I didn't study film scoring except sitting in Bill Lustig's apartment watching all of Morricone's work. And then, um, you know, I find it fascinating now to see his music being tracked, you know, into more contemporary films. And now, of course, he won the Academy Award recently um, for his film work. And um, and I find it odd because I am a jazz guy, but, you know, when the mission was done, it, lo- it it was nominated for an Academy Award, but it lost to uh, Round Midnight with uh, Herbie Hancock. And uh, they were both excellent scores. So um, it was just a matter of, you know, it was it was Herbie's turn then, I guess. <laughs> but Ennio got it like 25 years later, so it, yeah. it worked out. But he, but he really is. Well. He, he really is kind of the the gold standard, isn't he, in, in film scoring? It has to be Morricone. Oh yeah, well I'm I'm glad you agree. Um, I mean, he, I th- I think I don't think there's one, you know, of the contemporary scores that he's done that that's uh, that didn't work. I mean, flawlessly for me. I think it's just been a great experience listening to his music and his concert music as well. He does not just um, his mu- film music, but he'll do like he's done some legitimate, you know, compositions that he plays on his, uh, as John Williams does too, a cello concerto and a bassoon concerto and stuff like that. But it's, it's fascinating to hear him talk about, he has a whole theoretical approach to how he writes. And uh, yet he's so amazingly prolific. I can't imagine him sitting down and thinking that hard about every note that he writes, but it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. I, I remember talking to Friedkin about him and uh, uh-huh. he he had him compose Rampage for him, and he was expecting uh-huh. this very haunting, beautiful, delicate score, and he got something right. completely different um, right. because right. Morricone just heard it differently. And so Freakin said, mm-hmm. "Okay, but I'm I'm not going to question the master. I'll I'll use this score." Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, a lot of people would do that, like even with Jerry Goldsmith, and they would say. Oh no, that's not what we want. So we're just going to get like Tangerine Dream to redo it. You know, I mean, really, that's that's ridiculous. But and I got to know Jerry pretty well too, and he was a total innovator of of film scoring. And he, we also, you know, worked on the same, you know, like on Star Trek together. I mean, not together, but on, in separate you know, areas. And uh, so um, I use some of his music too when I when I teach. But, but you asked me for three, so if I was going to go to four, no, I would, that's good. I would, that's uh, good. Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 Goldsmith could compose anything. I mean, he was amazingly yes. versatile. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. That's it for this episode of the Movie Geeks United Art of the Score series. Our thanks to Jay Chataway for his generosity of time and talent, and thank all of you for listening. We end tonight with a segment for Mr. Chataway's rousing score to Invasion USA. Enjoy. <laughs>